Hey, everybody, and welcome to Beyond the Breakers, a podcast about shipwrecks, loss, and lessons learned from maritime disasters. My name is Tanner. I'll be one of your hosts today. First, we just want to thank you for all your support uh, we've had through the first season and now into our second season. You know, Taylor and I are just so happy to make something that has found an audience. It's found an audience of very cool, very interesting people we've been able to talk to. So that's great. That makes us feel good. It makes us feel really happy about the time that we put into making the show. Uh, as we've said previously, you know, we love interacting and reading your comments, reading your feedback, your questions, your corrections, even sometimes when we make mistakes. You can reach out to us on Twitter. We're at beyond underscore breakers on Instagram, beyond the breakers podcast. Our email is beyond the breakers pod at gmail.com. We do have a Facebook page. I think we're just about to pull the plug on the Facebook page, really. It doesn't get any use, and it's just so mind-numbing to think about going on there to update it. So it still exists if you want to give us a like while it's still there. We do have a Patreon set up for the show. That's probably the most important plug we have here at the beginning. That's patreon.com slash beyondbreakers. We want to keep the show ad-free. Those are the types of shows we like to listen to. Those are the shows we want to make. So money from that Patreon just goes right back into making the show. That covers things like web hosting fees, uh, research material, when that's something that we need to pony up some money for, and also the occasional upgrade to recording equipment. Just this past week, I actually had to, uh, or got to, I'll say, upgrade my microphone a little bit. So uh, so hopefully by our next recording session, we'll have that here and ready to go, and maybe it will pay some dividends in the recording quality. Last thing here for the opening housekeeping is uh, ratings and reviews. So if you listen to us on an app or on a website that allows you to rate and review the show, please, please do that. Five-star ratings really help. And those reviews, they make us feel good. I mean, if you say something nice about the show, it makes us feel good, that is. Uh, so leave those. Uh, that really helps the show stay visible, helps more people find the show, and just really helps overall. Uh, so with all that being said, I think I'll introduce our guest host for today, which is not Taylor, uh, if you saw our tweets about it. Today, we've got Kaylee. So welcome, Kaylee. Hi, I'm so glad to be here. <laughs> yeah, this is awesome. You know, normally, Taylor and I make this show. Taylor and I know each other about as well as as two people can know each other. I've known him literally since I got home from the hospital the first time. Um, so figured a change up here would be doing a show with basically a total stranger from the internet. So this is a this is a very cool change of pace, I think, here. So very exciting. So first a little bit, I guess, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. You know, what is your, your interest in shipwrecks? How did you find your way onto a shipwreck podcast? I would say a lifelong shipwreck in the same way that you guys are. Honestly, like heard Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald as a little kid and went, oh, <laughs> that rocks. So I live in Duluth, Minnesota. I have my entire life. So we've got shipping here. We always have. And when I was a kid, my dream job was being a park ranger at the mm -hmm. uh, Maritime Visitor Center that's next to the lift bridge in Duluth. And that's mm -hmm. actually what I do for a job now. So that's really cool. I started working there in June. So now I'm pretty much just awash in boat stuff all the time. So yes, lots of boats, both on the water and underneath, I am interested in. Very cool. Yeah, Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald is like the ultimate gateway drug, I feel like, for, for any really young is. person getting into shipwrecks. Um, but that's cool. Always cool to hear a story of someone who has the job that they wanted when they were when they were a kid. Um, kind of nerdy, if, but it is yes, very fun. If, I mean, that's solid advice, though. I would say for anyone, like if you have an interest when you're a kid, like just stick with it, hold on to it because there's cool stuff you can do with it. 
Mm-hmm. Um, although if I had stuck with my interests as a kid, I would be, I guess, an astronaut now. <laughs> um, I don't know. I'm fine where I am now. Anyway, so as a park ranger, I'm, I'm just curious. So park ranger, what uh, what does that entail? What do you what do you what's your what's your daily sort of schedule routine? So like our our park, and I use air quotes because it's not a mm-hmm. park that you think of when you think of like Smoky Bear Park Ranger. It's the whole right. like area by the piers by the aerial lift bridge. So mostly mm-hmm. that part of my job is like tourist uh, management and like visitor service and all that kind of stuff. But mm-hmm. uh, I'm also a museum tech, so I get to like make exhibits and like I take care of the collection. Oh. I do a whole bunch of stuff like with actual shipwreck artifacts. So that's like really neat too. So yeah, it's really like, cool. Whole host of stuff. That's really cool. I think any any job that allows you to touch the stuff in the museum is cool. Um, oh yeah. So that's that's Definitely. that's awesome. All right. I think that's all I wanted to cover here to begin with. I think you have come prepared with a shipwreck to tell us about. What are we learning about today? So today's shipwreck, uh, as you mentioned, does bring us back to Lake Superior, and it is called the Benjamin Noble. All right. A uh, little bit of background information in general. So the Noble was built in 1909 at Detroit Shipbuilding Company, and it was officially launched April 28th of that year. The Noble is kind of a canaler type of vessel, which if it's not something that you've seen or heard of, uh, it's pretty small uh, so that it can fit the dimensions of the Welland Canal so it can get around to all the Great Lakes. So she's about 239 feet long, about 40 feet wide, about an 18 foot draft. So it's a pretty small boat. We got a triple expansion steam engine, 870 horsepower, two boilers, and then there's also two masts. I learned this while doing research for this episode. Uh, Even after they didn't really use masts anymore and didn't even have sails Mm -hmm. on them, they still kind of built them onto the boats for a while. They're very aesthetically pleasing. I I like the way they look on the ship, even if they're not getting used. I know. It's a a nice looking, looking little boat. She's Mm -hmm. cute. Even though a little bit of a weird design, actually, it's not something that you realize when you're like, unless you look at it for like more than a couple seconds. So the hull is built a little bit higher on the sides of the deck. So it's not flush and your bow and stern cabins are elevated above the spar deck as opposed to just being right on the deck. So the deck is like very low in the water compared to the rest of the ship. And uh, the apparently the uh, higher sides, that design it made it easier to carry pulp wood, which is what the Noble was initially intended to haul and was designed to haul. It was first owned by the Detroit Sulfite Fiber Company, specifically to be transporting pulpwood. The hatches on it were also like really, really big. So after they stopped using it for just pulpwood, she carried like stone, coal, and uh, railroad iron and railroad rails, which is what she was carrying on her fateful journey, which we will get into in not too long. (laughs) So at the Time of the eventual sinking, the Noble was in the hands of the Capital Transportation Company, and she was actually the only boat owned by that company. So, kind of sad if you only have one Aww. boat and then it sinks. <laughs> but <laughs> that's neither here nor there. It had a hundred percent loss. That's a hundred percent boat loss. That is not a good yeah. ratio at all. <laughs> and I was trying to find kind of some background about if there was anything else interesting it did during its career. Only around for four years. I actually found a news article uh, from the Toronto Globe during the 1913 storm, which you are all too familiar with. (laughs) Quote, the steamer Noble broke loose from the Montreal Transportation Company wharf and had to be moved back into better shelter. So uh, a boat that wasn't out there in the 1913 storm that was trying to get into the 1913 storm. Uh, She she wants to be, though. She craves the abyss. 
she wants to get out there so bad mm. and we're gonna or i was thinking about it too and it's like oh wow it could have sank in the 1913 storm but it ended up sinking like less than a year later so right yeah that's it's interesting to think about a ship that was on the lakes you know in in at least a position to sink during the 1913 storm and you get through that and then you you sink a year later yeah thank half, goodness half we didn't go later. down in that one <laughs> yeah and then it did <laughs> So when I was doing the notes for this, I started the whole section of the sinking with the incident, but really it's a lot of prelude to incident. Right. Yeah. Yeah. This is probably one of the shorter lifespans that we've had on a ship we've talked about, Uh, only being around for just a handful of years, really. Four years. And actually, um, so since it was a spoilers, all hands on deck situation, everybody went down with Mm -hmm. it. Um, we don't know exactly when it went down, if it was like late in the night of the 27th or early in the morning of the 28th. But if it was mm-hmm. on the 28th, it actually sank four years to the day that it was launched, ah. which is kind of sad. <laughs> it is. But I'd say, yeah, for, for story purposes, we'll just say that that's the day it sank. Yeah. It's exactly. Four years <laughs> to the day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the Noble begins the 1914 shipping season. Uh, leaving her winter berth in Cleveland, Ohio, and arriving in uh, Conneaut, Ohio. The captain on this journey is a 31-year-old John Eisenhart of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. This was actually uh, the first boat that uh, Captain Eisenhart was in command of. So he was on several others, like in smaller position, but he got his captain's papers. This is his first trip. Oh, boy. I was actually, I I found a... uh an article from the Escanaba Morning Press uh, detailing his uh, a memorial service in Milwaukee for him. So if we have some time at the end, if it's not something that comes up from you, we can, Ooh. I'll discuss that at the end. Uh, it actually won't because I tried to look at that article and it was paywalled. So. Oh, <laughs> And yeah. I couldn't figure out how to get around it. So that was great. <laughs> Very cool. Sure. So the Noble, this is first boat. And this is their first load of the season as well. So it's a bunch of steel rails produced by the uh, Cambria Steel Company, and they're going to be delivered to the Great Northern Railroad in Superior, Wisconsin. So going from Ohio up the lakes to Superior, pretty standard trip. The problem with this cargo is that it's a whole lot of railroad rails. So it's Mm. not enough to make two trips worth it, but it's way too many for one trip. So you're trying (laughs) to save money. Not good. This is unloading the car from the grocery store and being determined that you're not going to make two trips. You're going to get it all in one. This is exactly that. Okay. <laughs> I can carry it all. Or can I? Mm-hmm. So they start they start loading the cargo in and uh, railroad rails are incredibly heavy and they're a very slow loading process. So they have to be lowering them into the cargo holds one at a time. They have to be spacing them out with wood and they have to make sure that there's enough space like on both ends of the ship. So you're not going to have a huge wave hit you and have your cargo shift and then immediately sink. So there's Mm kind of lots of geometry that goes into it. It sounds like a total headache to me. Do you know, do you have this info about how, how long is one railroad rail? I actually don't know that. I was just curious, like I was thinking how how much of that is just one piece. I don't know. I'll look into that later and see. Yeah, I wonder if there is. A, yeah, I wonder if that's a standard thing or if it's changed. That is interesting. Yeah. I do know though that uh, the amount of railroad rails that end up going onto the Noble are just about three thousand tons, and that just feels like a lot <laughs> if you're that's in that small of a boat. A little bit small. 
I don't know how far over the usual draft mark the noble ended up getting loaded, but there's a lot of proof that people at the dock are like visibly worried and voicing their worries. So Mm -hmm. from Dwight Boyer's Ghost Ships of the Great Lakes, which if you haven't read it, it's a great book. It's all Mm -hmm. about ships that are lost with all hands. Super good. Quote, a dock foreman commented to Captain Eisenhart that the ship looked dangerously low in the water. The captain's reply had been somewhat evasive. The foreman could only recall that he had said something about following the shore as near as possible all the way up the lakes. Another worker, (laughs) when he heard his superior repeat the captain's words, was quick to reply, hell, he ain't going very far up the lakes. Unquote. (laughs) There's been several situations on the show where where we have, you know, either dock workers or, you know, uh, harbor captains or whoever it may be voicing their concerns. And it's like these are people who are probably used to lots of situations where, you know, things are cutting it close or things are not exactly following regulations. And I feel like when they're vocally voicing these opinions, it it really is a bad sign for the boat. Um, Yeah, you'd think no one's going to say something if it doesn't look really bad. yeah. So there's that guy. He says that. I'm from the Minnesota Historic Society. They have a big shipwreck page. They mm-hmm. say that a customs officer said to Captain Eisenhart, and if this was said unprompted, this is a little bit mean as well. He said, quote, I should not like to ride with you. You are overloaded, unquote. <laughs> Did he ask? Let's <laughs> <laughs> walk up and say that. And then uh, there's also the the picture that I'm sure you guys will get in the show notes. but. It's kind of rare for you to have a picture of a boat like right before it leaves on the trip where it sinks, especially this far mm-hmm. back. Like, imagine how nuts it would be if there was a picture of like the Fitz leaving Superior. That's one of the right. ones that people haven't really seen. Uh, there was a dock worker who was like, That ship is so overloaded. I'm going to snap a picture. And it's not a great <laughs> quality picture, but you can see yeah. uh, it's like the anchor pockets are like almost underwater. It looks mm-hmm. very bad. <laughs> so that's what yeah, that I mean, photo I- is. Yeah, I feel like now, now it's like you, you see something mildly interesting and you can snap a picture of it. But I feel like at the time, a little bit more of a big deal if you see something that's worth worth using up one of your pictures on. So that's Absolutely. definitely not a, not, not a good sign for the ship at all, probably. Not really, not at all. Now, you may think, like, why would they leave this overloaded if people are saying things? Uh, the theory that I've seen floated is that 1914, the economy's really not very good. And uh, if the captain walked, there's probably 50 other guys on shore with captain's papers who would have been like, I'll take the job. So mm-hmm. it's his first time as captain. He probably doesn't want to risk that. Sad, but right. that is what ended up yeah, going I guess down. I hadn't thought about that aspect of it. You probably, that's like calling in on your first day at a new job, kind of, mm-hmm. I guess. It's, you don't you don't want to do that, probably. Yeah. Like, doesn't look good, but yeah, kind of just yeah. weighing that. So as I said, yeah, 3,000 tons of rails in total. And there's still a few more cars been waiting. So if they would have done the full load, like it probably just would have sank in the slip, which maybe would have been better. But it was six days of loading. And uh, it was actually Captain Eisenhardt who was like, okay, we're done on April 21st. Like he's like, mm-hmm. no, we're not putting any more on here. So he was not feeling good about that. So they finished loading on April 21st and they leave the following morning, April 22nd. Uh, they make it all the way from the lower lakes up to the Sioux Locks on April 25th around 7 a.m. And being that they made it that far, the weather must have just been like perfect. It must have been mm-hmm. beautiful out there because <laughs> even one wave, no. <laughs> While at the Sioux, Captain Eisenhart actually sent a letter to his sister who was back home and he said he feared for the vessel and her stability due to how overloaded she was. 
So that letter actually probably got to her after uh, the ship had mm-hmm. disappeared, which is pretty sad. Yeah. They get through the Sioux locks with five other vessels, the Norwalk, the Rosemount, the Rufus P. Ranny, the Yosemite, and the Scottish Hero. Lots of boats uh, going through the locks. Most of those are also smaller canalers. Mm-hmm. When they go through the locks, it's incredibly bad timing because as soon as they get out of sight of the Sioux, the gale warning flags go up mm-hmm. and they have no way to know what's about to hit them. <laughs> they don't have radio. They don't have anything like that. So in normal conditions, the Noble probably could have made it to Duluth by about April 27th. So like a little over two days, they're going slow. But that was when the newspapers started to be like, oh, this boat is overdue. A boat today can get from uh, the Sioux to Duluth in about 26 hours in good weather. This is when things start to get nasty. (laughs) On the 26th, uh, harsh winds start kicking up. It begins raining really hard. Then the temperatures drop overnight. So that rain is turning to sleet. That sleet is turning to snow. And then the morning of the 27th, the winds shift and they're coming just full speed out of the northeast. So not really good weather going on right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think people, this is a great uh, thing for people who are unfamiliar with the upper Midwest area. You think April, late April, you're thinking like nice springtime weather and like not the case, really. You know, this is a great example of how it that's, doesn't really happen as much. Yeah, we just last week, we were having uh, horrible winds up here, just terrible. And we got that taste of spring and then everything went back downhill. So I was thinking about we, I work with several people who are from the, the South, but several people uh, commenting like, oh, like uh, that winter's over and spring's finally here. And I was like, don't say that. She will hear. <laughs> it's false. And, she, and she'll take it away from you. Oh, no. So around this same time in Duluth, the gale warning flags are also going up because the weather is getting really bad. And Lake Superior operates uh, like a small ocean, honestly, just because of how big it is. So when you get winds ripping across like the open expanse stopped by nothing, you are getting huge waves. You are getting just Mm -hmm. awful conditions out there. I, a person who loves boats, fear the lake. And I would not, Mm -hmm. (laughs) I would not go on a freighter. I simply would not do that. We make this show every week. And like, I feel like on the one hand, it's like, well, Tanner, like, shouldn't you be interested in being on boats? And it's like, absolutely not. No. No, thank you. (laughs) So uh, weather in Duluth, also getting bad at this time. A steamer called the Minneapolis leaves Duluth on the 27th. They're thinking, "Ah, this is as bad as the weather's going to get. And as I'm sure you and anybody who listens to this podcast know, back then, captains are less cautious to the weather, partially because companies are caring about productivity above all else and say, nah, get it done, get out there. So they're not Mm -hmm. being very cautious. The Duluth Herald of April 28th, headline, Fierce gale sweeps lake. All boats at head of lakes held in port by storm. Uh, The steamer John Lambert, loaded with grain, ventured for a down lake trip at midnight, but returned for safety. Unquote. In Duluth on April 28th, uh, there's wind gusts recorded of 64 miles an hour. So if those are the gusts, the sustainings are going to be pretty high as well. Um, Mm -hmm. There's store windows blowing in downtown. A coal machine blows over down at the docks. And uh, ore dust is getting whipped into clouds out of the big piles of iron ore sitting around. So visibility is bad. (laughs) The worst thing, though, speaking of visibility, the lighthouses that mark the entry to the canal are kerosene-based at this point. They do not have electricity out there. And the light Uh, on the south pier is blown out by the winds. That seems problematic. 
It's sure not good. I found a uh, really great quote. It's also from the Duluth Herald, April 29th. So by this time, uh, they know that uh, the noble is not going to be coming in. And there's a lot of vessels that were having trouble with the lighthouse being blown out. So there's a guy who is very, very mad. And he writes this little letter in the newspaper about the lighthouses. It says, no blame is attached by marine men to Captain Pryor, who has charge of the lighthouses here or to members of his crew. If the fault lies anywhere, vessel captains say it is with the antiquated equipment of the lighthouse department. The lighthouse has no electrical service, and when a storm of such proportions as of yesterday and last night, and of November 28, 1905, uh, you guys haven't talked about the Matafa on here, have you? We've mentioned it. It's come up. We, we haven't like ever focused on it. Okay. It's, it's mentioned a lot of times in the, the Noble story, actually, because they're like, this is the worst storm since then, and that was a bad mm-hmm. thing. There's no way for the lighthouse men to get back and forth to attend to the lights. The fact that a man lost his life trying to walk the pier yesterday is evidence of this. The fact remains that the outside light on the south side of the canal was not lighted last night, and a boat coming in had no way to find out where the canal was. Besides that, the foghorn was not working, so you really got nothing (laughs) at this point. And the attendant who usually looks after these matters was unable to get to the outer end of the pier where the light and foghorn are located. If the noble's master was trying to find the Duluth entry and could not, the old-fashioned and inexcusable regulations of the lighthouse department are at fault. An up-to-date and considerate department would have the lighthouses wired for such emergencies, and electric lights could be worked at least. So that's pretty scathing. (laughs) I'm sure at some point, some cocky lake captain made the comment that I've done that so many times I could do it with my eyes closed. And then the monkey's paw curls, and we have this situation. No, you cannot. Nowadays, too, the uh, the two lighthouses at the canal, uh, one of them, the North Pier Lighthouse, was actually built like in response to the Matafa storm because there wasn't a lighthouse mm-hmm. there at the time. But the lighthouses today, they, they blink at different intervals and the lights are two different colors. Uh, as far mm-hmm. as I could tell uh, in my research, it was just two lights. So if you just see one light, you don't know if that's the left side of the canal or the right uh, side of the you canal. Have to, you have to just guess, just flip a coin. And mm-hmm. there's quite a few options there that are not good. <laughs> Right. (laughs) Not a guess that you are looking to make. Even in this terrible weather, the Benjamin Noble, as fully loaded as she is, is still somehow making its way towards Duluth. So get all the way through the Sioux, all the way around the corner. And uh, they're following the Norwalk, this other vessel, pretty closely. Mm -hmm. This is the last time that the Noble is like actually seen that we know of is them coming around Devil's Island, like up near the Apostles. But after that, eyewitness accounts start to go all over the place. The newspaper publishes uh, three different ones on the same day. And I think it's kind of funny the order that they published these eyewitness accounts, because most of them, well, two of them are not very good. But the first one they start with, the Duluth Herald, April 30th. So the noble should have been in on the 27th or the 30th. Several people in Duluth are said to have seen the lost steamer Benjamin Noble go to her fate. But when the reports are followed up, it usually results in the probability that what they really saw was the steamer Minneapolis of the Mutual Line maneuvering in the lake, waiting for daylight so her officers might see the Duluth entry. So when the Minneapolis left, they realized they couldn't get in because of the lights. So they just kind of hung out in the lake, which must have been incredibly Mm. scary. Yeah. One well-known Duluth woman. So this is the first eyewitness account they have. She may have been a witness to the foundering of the noble. She resides on 3rd Street near 20th Avenue East, and she believes she saw a vessel founder on Tuesday night. She said she felt it her duty to report the incident, but urged her name not be published. For instance, 
In view of the fact the wreckage of the ill-fated steamer Benjamin Noble that is floating ashore gives evidence the steamer was not very far out, it may be that the, this woman did see the tragedy. So it's basically she's sitting in her living room, she sees lights on the lake, and then they disappear. So she mm-hmm. goes, oh my god, did I just see a ship sink? And then when she finds out about the Noble, she assumes it's that. Makes sense. But she won't give her identity. Um, but her address, totally fine. I, I, know, I live over I, here, I, but don't tell him my name. <laughs> I wonder when we, I don't know when we stopped doing that as a society, just publishing people's addresses in the newspaper when, when they said something, but. <laughs> the old, old like uh, personal sections of newspapers are my favorite where it's like, mm-hmm. these people of this address are going to be gone for two weeks. Yes, exactly. Yeah, I think we had some fun with those during the Noronic episode, and it's just crazy. Oh, yeah, the, I remember that. The type of the type of stuff that would just be published just out for everyone to see. Um, <laughs> all good stuff. So yeah, this this woman, she says, I think I saw it sink. I'm pretty sure that's what I saw. This random, well known Duluth woman. The next person they mm-hmm. talk to, the master of the steamer Lakeport of the Port Huron and Duluth Steamship Company, says that he is not so sure, but that he saw the last of the noble. He arrived in Duluth yesterday morning. He passed the Noble on the other side of two harbors, and while nearing Duluth was about five miles ahead of the Noble. When the latter was about five miles this side of two harbors, sight was lost of her, and Captain Knapp believed she went under shortly afterwards. First sighting puts her, like, right outside of the Duluth entry. Second sighting Mm -hmm. puts her, like, close to Duluth, but, like, a little farther up the shore. Mm -hmm. And our third sighting, at 3 a.m. on the 28th, Captain Millen of the Daniel J. Morell Yes, that Daniel J. Morrell sees the lights of two ships near Knife Island, which is about 17 miles up the shore from Duluth. While mm-hmm. he watched, one of the ships disappeared. He assumed it was a snow squall and only realized later it could have been the noble sinking when he heard about her disappearance. The Duluth Herald of May 1st, 1914, quotes, F.B. Spellman, the chairman of the Harbors and Waterways Committee, which is just a great name and title. Uh, <laughs> he says, yeah, the guy from the Morrell is right. That's what we think that's what we think happened because the Norwalk made it to Duluth uh, about an hour and a half after that sighting about four thirty. Mm-hmm. but the noble obviously does not. Right. Knife Island, kind of like danger point that we talked about in South Africa, the kind of place you might wreck a ship doesn't sound like good sailing environment. Also right up there uh, a little, I don't know if it's a township. It's not really a city. There's a, an area called castle danger, which is the coolest name for anything ever. That's like a, that's the name of the bad guy's fortress in like a terrible 1980s fantasy book, Castle Danger. Really? It's, it has he, like He-Man vibes also. Like, Oh my God, it really uh, does. <laughs> so uh, in the following days, uh, wreckage starts washing up kind of everywhere. So stuff is washing up on Minnesota Point, which haven't been to Duluth. There's a long spit of sandbar south of the canal. So uh, hatch covers are washing up there. Uh, the pilot house washes up there. There's also stuff washing up uh, near the mouth of the Leicester River, which is five miles north of the harbor on the other side. So it's a really wide debris field. So that kind of gives you an idea of just how wild that storm must have been because stuff is going Mm -hmm. everywhere. Now, with all of the different eyewitness accounts, when it went missing, people truly didn't know where it was. Some people thought they tried to come into the canal. They hit deep water and then sunk off of park points like really close to Duluth some people think oh yeah up the up the shore up by Knife Island but honestly as much as like the lighthouse thing is talked about I personally don't think I believe they even got as far as Duluth to turn around and try to make two Mm -hmm. harbors I think they just went down 
mm-hmm. farther up the shore. So they might have not right. even known that there was way more stress ahead. Right. Yeah. Even if they'd made that point, it could have been like, oh, well, here's here's another problem. Yeah. Since there obviously no one survived. No one knows mm-hmm. if they got that far or not. Now, when I say no one survived, you may ask, well, how many people died in the sinking, Kaylee? And I would say, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so it was the first trip <laughs> of the season. <laughs> they didn't have a crew list. So reports are anywhere from 16 to 20 people. They really, really didn't know how many people were on board. You know, I, I saw the detail of how it was the first one of the season. And so there was no crew list. And I was just I was just interested or curious in that. Like, to me, it seems like the first trip of the season would be like the only trip where you would have a reliable crew list. And then maybe it changes throughout the season. But I don't know. I thought that was interesting. Yeah, that, isn't it? We were. I was talking about that with my uh, my coworker Scott, who he's the one who wrote in oh, yeah. about the whale back stuff. Yeah, he's mm-hmm. great, and he will listen to this. So hi, Scott. Uh, <laughs> I was like, why, <laughs> hi, Scott. Uh, why, why in the world um, wouldn't they have a crew list? And uh, his theory, which I kind of go with, is that uh, captains had more like hiring authority back then. So it wasn't like mm-hmm. you're not hired by the company. The captain's like, hey, hop on. Right. So maybe he didn't publish a list because. I don't know. He didn't know who he was going to pick up, what was going on. I don't know. Got it. Makes sense. A possibility. A possibility. (laughs) The search for the wreck was called off on May 2nd. So a couple days, close to a week later. And then they went, well, we don't know where it is. They weren't able to find it for quite a long time. There's actually a Supreme Court case that was related to the sinking that I found while I was uh, doing this research. Capital Transportation versus Cambria Steel Company. From what I could gather from the legalese, because it's not only legalese, it's like, 1914 style writing uh Mm -hmm. capital transportation was uh trying to say hey uh so sorry about those rails that we were hauling for you because our boat sank but we don't have to pay you for them right and cambria (laughs) steel company said what yeah you do so uh, uh two lower courts and the supreme court both agreed that uh Capital Transportation knew the noble was unseaworthy. They were trying to claim, oh, act of God, terrible storm. Mm-hmm, right. Um, so they did have to pay up. Couldn't find how much. But I wonder uh-huh. almost if that picture uh, of them being so terribly low in the water was entered into evidence at all. That's like a this you moment, uh, <laughs> like we see so often on Twitter. I can imagine that playing a role in the trial. Uh, yeah. So as I said, uh, disappeared they there were series about where it was um but they did finally find benjamin noble in the fall of 2004 and being a little shipwreck nerd i remember that happening (laughs) (laughs) not it was not huge news but i do vividly remember that happening for some reason so over 90 years after she disappeared the group of shipwreck hunters that were looking for her uh, were actually not looking for the Benjamin Noble at the time. They were looking for the wreck of the Robert Wallace, which was a wooden freighter that sprang a leak and just sank in 1902. They got a hit on their side scan sonar, and then they realized, oh, this is a steel freighter. This isn't wood. <laughs> this isn't the Wallace. They lowered a camera down. The cargo holds are open. The hatch covers are gone. They see a whole bunch of railroad rails. So they're like, well, there's only one thing this could be. And it did end up being the Benjamin Noble. Interesting. I love a good serendipitous find where they're looking for something else. That's always interesting. Yeah, right. Um, it's about eight miles southeast of Knife River, too. So uh, Knife River, Knife Island area. So that is where the Daniel J. Morrell captain was right. It's over 360 feet of water. So it's pretty far down there. And uh, it's really deep in a trench that it created while hitting the bottom. So a kind of a combination probably of the heavy cargo shooting forward and the propeller still working when it was driven. To oh, the right. 
Okay. So it didn't like spring a leak or anything. Uh, it looks like it probably just a wave that was a little too big finally mm-hmm. got it and then tipped it and then down it went. I'm just so amazed that it made it that far. Right? <laughs> it really, really That's shouldn't crazy. have. It should yeah. not have been a Lake Superior shipwreck at all. Uh, since the hatch covers are all off, if you were to go down there, send a camera down there, uh, you can see all of the railroad rails still in there as uh, mm-hmm. most of the hatches are open. And kind of a, a fun little button on the wreck finding part, uh, Lake Superior Magazine put out a $1,000 reward in 1987 for anyone that found the Noble. And uh, when they found it in 2004, they did pay up. So they did make good on that $1,000 promise. Was it just 1000 even? Or did they have to like convert it for inflation? You know? I don't think they. I don't <laughs> think they did inflation. I love it. Probably that's, should have. That's awesome. They yeah. they used that thousand dollars too to uh, work on getting it on the National Register of Historic Places. So they kind of just put the money right back into the wreck. Cool. And that is all of uh, all of my research. All right. Well, that's cool. That was a shipwreck, uh, a story that I have definitely never heard of before. Uh, before you mentioned it in the lead up to us recording this, it's very cool. I did want to talk just a little bit about uh, the captain that you had mentioned earlier uh, as Captain John Eisenhart. As I was just clicking around, I tried not to read too much about this in the lead up to it. I wanted to be surprised, Mm -hmm. Um, but I was able to read a little bit here about um, the captain who was from Milwaukee. And I found a, a short article from the Escanaba Morning Press. This was from May 14th of 1914. And this is a bit confusing because they're just quoting the Milwaukee Sentinel directly. So the quote I'm reading is originally from there. This is a just very sad detail about this all. Two or three days after the death of Captain Eisenhart, a telegram brought a message that had he lived would have fulfilled the young sailor's ambition. Several years ago, he obtained his papers as a captain, but owing to his youth was unable to obtain a command. He also studied deep-sea navigation and secured papers making him competent to sail an ocean steamer. He had an application pending for command on the Atlantic when he was assigned to the Noble. Two days after the news came of the loss of the steamer at Duluth with all on board, a telegram came addressed to Captain Eisenhart announcing that he had been assigned to the command of a large steamship on the Atlantic Ocean. It's so sad. It's such a gut punch, yeah. Uh, seems like a captain who was, you know, like young and ambitious, and he, you know, seems like he was sort of overqualified for a lot of the stuff just as he was building up experience, and then he finally has his uh, his chance, but it comes a little bit too late. Very sad, as many of our stories tend to be. That's almost like a, a reverse of the uh, oh, it was his last trip before retirement. Like it was his yeah. last trip before he could have gotten a way better job. <laughs> Yeah, this is a, kind of like the potential, you know, jumping off point in his in his larger career. That's extremely bleak um, as an ending here to the story. Yeah, and actually, uh, some of the other ships involved in the story obviously have stories of their own. We already talked about the Daniel J. Morrell. We'll cover that at some point. Also, the uh, was it the Robert Wallace? Was that the name? Yeah, the Robert Wallace was the one they were looking for. I was reading a little bit about that. I did see that it was traveling in tandem with a ship called the David Wallace. And as an office fan, we feel like we'd be obligated to at least talk about that on a later episode. So with all that, I mean, if, if that uh, sort of wraps things up here, we can sort of end things here. Uh, before we do, anything else that you'd like to discuss? Anything else that you'd like to plug? Anything 
personal you'd like to promote? Well, if you're ever watching the uh, Duluth Canal Cam, uh, sometimes I'm the person that reads when boats come in, which is one of the best parts of my job. <laughs> Perfect. There is that, yeah, uh, with my park rangery duties. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Kaylee Fabulous, which if you like bad tweets and uh, bad <laughs> tweets about boats, I do a lot of that. <laughs> and uh, right. I, I am a, I'm a musician, too. That link's on there, all that good stuff. But mm-hmm. yeah, if you guys ever... Uh, ever want to do anything about the Matapa, which keeps coming up. That is a, a Duluth shipwreck that has a whole lot of history there as well. Yeah, that's one that sort of has danced around. Uh, I think we've had to mention it on a couple episodes. So that's definitely something that we need to discuss in the future. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, kind of a landmark wreck around here. Yeah, so with all that, I'll just say, yeah, go check out Kaylee's music. She has an album called Stirring Skies. I checked it out. It's awesome. So go check that out. And uh, we hope everyone enjoys the episode. And we'll be back next week with some more uh, more shipwreck content for you. So take care, everyone.